Good afternoon. Um, my name is Alexander Blunt. I am uh, your first speaker. The, the bios about us are in the, um, the app, and so we're not going to go into explaining all the things we claim to have done. Um, I want to. We're going um, to start today with um, disclosure, uh, which says essentially, I'm only working for you and the supporters of this conference, and not anybody else. Um, our learning objectives. Uh, we hope that when we're done, that you'll be able to identify the key components of effective uh, MDD management that you'll be able to analyze the pharmacological properties and indications of new emerging agents, and that you'll be able to evaluate strategies for patient-centered management to improve care. So let's start talking about depression as a human experience. Um, it, is, it impacts every aspect of life. It impacts job functioning, family functioning, social functioning, health functioning, and we list those like they were just lit things on a list, but these are not only powerful individual aspects of a person's life, but they also interact. When you aren't doing as well at work and you start to be frustrated, you're not as likely to be as good as a, a partner, as a parent, you're likely to withdraw, you're likely to take less care of you. People who are depressed don't take care of themselves. And sometimes they, in fact, harm themselves. It happens that, or we know that, people with the most stressed lives have the highest rate of depression. And so, for instance, people with lower income, lower education, fewer opportunities, people who cope on a regular basis with bias or racism, those folks are going to have a higher rate of, of depression than um, the population in general. So we know that um, depression has three general areas of symptom domains, emotional, cognitive, and physical. I think you would know that. Cognitive symptoms are an important part of this and sometimes an, an underestimated part of depression. And they are um, they durable uh, through acute and response and admission stages. Uh, in fact, um, they tend to be um, uh, going on despite the different areas of, of depression. I mean, you can imagine if you've been thinking for a while that you're no good and that you'll never amount to anything, the fact that you're feeling better uh, after a while doesn't necessarily mean that's going to turn around real fast. And that you, the being able to focus, the being able to remember, um, all of that is a challenge that can be enduring. Um, and so they, uh, they are caused significant impairment. Think about the relationship of cognitive symptoms and your work functioning. Um, that's going to be uh, an, an important piece. Uh, here's a pieces of the perceived deficit questionnaire and that are focused on positive symptoms. Um, and the Massachusetts General Hospital's cognitive physical functioning questionnaire has um, cognitive symptoms um, measured. 
Um, in fact, the digit symbol substitution test, which is um, something that attempts to capture cognitive uh, functioning in several domains, uh, is used to uh, measure the effects of MDD. And the effects of MDD are society-wide. What you're looking at is a uh, breakdown of the cost of different illnesses or diseases to employers. These are employers who pay the cost of medical care. That's not everybody anymore. But so, and it, if you look, the orange part is the cost of the medical care for their employees. The blue part is the pharma cost. The yellow part is the cost to the employer of the absenteeism that goes with these illnesses and difficulties. And the green part is presenteeism. And presenteeism is, generally means I'm at work, but I ain't doing much. I can't get anything done. And it also has within it all the churning of the workforce that goes with people who are sick and under-functioning. People get fired. You have to hire new people. You have to advertise. All of that goes into that number. And what you see is the depression is by far the most expensive illness for the employers, way more than, say, cancer, which is much more dramatic. Um, and this is just a microcosm of the society as a whole. It's just easier. This is something you can uh, measure rigorously. So detection, detection is a start, but it's only a start. We have good ways of screening. PHQ-2 is a very reasonable way to screen everybody who comes in primary care. It's easy to do. Mo several places just do it at every visit. Others do it at different timings. But it has to be followed up with a PHQ-9. You would never diagnose depression on the basis of a PHQ-2 score. If there, so if it's positive, you, you go to the 9. Detection does not mean people get better because you have to have something you can do for them. So first of all, you detect people at risk for depression. That's all PHQ-9 measures. Then you have to confirm the diagnosis because there are many of depression symptoms that are also symptoms of other illnesses. And so there needs to be an evaluation of the person's situation. And then you need a programmatic pathway. You need to be able to do something for these folks. And in many places, they would say, well, we refer them to the mental health system, which, in fact, isn't a pathway for most folks. If you are a primary care provider and you tell your patient that they need to go to a mental health or that you recommend they go to a mental health provider in the public or private system, somewhere on the order of 70% are not going to go. A high percentage, close to 100%, are going to say, yes, doctor, that's a good idea, sure, I'll do that. But they don't go. So you've got to be able to do something else. In fact, it's behavioral health treatment in primary care or no treatment for these folks. So there have been approaches to how do we treat depression in primary care, and Wayne Caton and his team... Um, will offer an approach to integrating behavioral health clinicians into primary care. It's called the collaborative care model. They 
recommend having a psychiatrist as part of it, offering um, uh, guidance, uh, as well as a behavioral health clinician of some sort who will do patient monitoring or um, a specified dose of a brief therapeutic intervention. The downside of this is that it's pretty narrow. You're focusing on one illness. And in many practices, that has been a source of tension. That, well, I've got someone over here who is so anxious she can't function at all and she can't get treatment because we're only treating depression. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't seem fair. So having an ability to address behavioral health more broadly has been an important piece for some practices. And for those practices, often the primary care behavioral health model is a better fit. The, the PCBH model doesn't preclude having specified programs for particular illnesses, but it involves having behavioral health as part of the infrastructure of the practice, um, that the, they are part of managing the psychosocial aspects of chronic and acute illness. Um, they ha apply behavioral principles for behavior change and risk behaviors. And they consult to and co-manage more difficult cases to, with um, uh, behavioral health issues or substance abuse issues with the idea of getting them back to the management by the PCP or then being a personal link to the specialty mental health system if, those, if that's needed. So this, this model uh, is um, very common and growing, and um, I'll talk more about integrating behavioral health into primary care in a bit. But I would like to bring on my colleague, Dr. Ja, who will tell you about the treatment of depression. Thank you, Dr. Blunt. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, I'm a psychiatrist by training. Uh, I just wanted to check, are there any psychiatrists in this room? Well, what I have to say may not be very pleasant to them, so I'm safe. Are there many primary care providers here? Okay. Well, I, what I have to say, some of it you, you're going to like. So uh, getting started, uh, these are my, uh, okay, I should be seeing there. These are my disclosures. I, uh, I'm a psychiatrist. I work in treatment-resistant depression, and I do clinical trials. And these are two of the drug companies that have funded studies that I've uh, worked on. Uh, just uh, piggybacking on what Dr. Blunt was saying, I wanted to have a slide about what's the state of care uh, in the United States about depression. So the first thing is, this is data from National Ambulatory Medical Care Survey that's done nationally every year. And over the past 10 years, consistently the rate of depression screening in ambulatory care settings has been about 3%. This, uh, this hasn't changed. It varies between 3 to 4%. And to put it in perspective, the first practice guideline about management of depression in primary care came out in 1991. Uh, John Rush, who was the lead chair of that panel, was at UT Southwestern, which was where I trained. And this has been out there for decades now. Still, the rate of screening is pretty low. The next set of data is about what's the state of treatment. 
So this is data from an epidemiological study and where they found that patients who met criteria for major depressive disorder in the past 12 months, about half of them did not get any treatment at all, not medication, not seeing someone for therapy. And even amongst those who get some treatment, only about 40% got minimally adequate treatment. And they were really permissive in defining what was minimally adequate treatment. If you said that in the past 12 months, you saw someone for your depression three times, irrespective of what you got treated with, they counted that as minimally adequate. So even with such a permissive criteria, fewer than 20% people in the community with depression actually get treated. This data from 2003, I'm not sure if much has changed since then. And part of the problem is, and this is data straight from federal government, that about 100 million adults, uh, people in the United States, they live in what's called mental health shortage area. So it, there is just not enough mental health providers to take care of patients with depression or other behavioral health conditions. So one of the things that John Rush and uh, Madhukar Trivedi, my mentors, they started working on was how can we more systematically treat depression? And they came up with a very simple idea of like a measurement-based care, which is good clinical practice. Let's measure symptoms. Let's measure side effects. Let's measure adherence. And then let's have patients come back frequently. So it's not that medication is not going to be effective for six to eight weeks. You have this prescription, and I'll see you in two months. They had patients come back in two to three weeks so that if there is any side effect that could be addressed, if there was any adherence-related issues that could be addressed. And they also built a systematic system for feedback. So uh, there was a clinical decision support system. This was being done manually in early 2000. Now there are like electronic systems built in EHR which can do that. But the idea was that clinicians should be getting feedback over time and these symptoms should be monitored so that patients could be educated as they are progressing. So uh, this measurement-based care approach was utilized at large scale in a study called STAR-D. If you don't know anything about depression clinical trials, this is one study you should know about because till date, it is the largest medication trial of uh, patients with depression. 4,000 people were started in either primary care or psychiatric clinics where they were coming and seeking treatment, which is very different from pharma studies where we actually run ads and patients come to us. This was treatment-seeking outpatients. And STAR-D has over... 200 publications and probably more than that. But my favorite fig, uh, figure in STAR-D is this one simple picture. And in this, in STAR-D, about 40% patients were seen in primary care clinics. They were completely managed by primary care providers. What they found was there was really no difference in the symptom severity. So it wasn't that if you came to a psychiatric practice seeking treatment that you were more ill. Patients who were seeking treatment in primary care were as ill. But the treatment outcomes were absolutely the same. So this was a big, uh, I think, uh, point being made was that with the initial medication management, the outcomes you get in primary care are as good as you would get in a psychiatric care setting. So with the initial treatment of depression, what I say is that I don't have any special magic. If you do the same things that I would do, the treatment outcomes are about the same. They are not great. So one of the findings of STAR-D was that about only a third patients with their initial treatment do better. Even after four consecutive treatments, about two-thirds of the patients don't improve. And uh, that's what we call treatment-resistant depression. And we, then we need to think about other modalities of treatment that could be available. 
So uh, we followed up with this uh, on uh, in a public health quality improvement project where in Dallas-Fort Worth metropolitan area, we went to about 16 primary care clinics. Most of these were either uh, charity clinics or FQHCs. So th- more than 50% of patients they were serving were uh, Medicaid or low-income or uh, uninsured. Uh, this being Texas, over 25% Uh, population in Texas was uninsured the last year that I was there, which was a couple of years ago. So uh, we wanted to see how well can screening work. So this was a program to screen everyone walking in through their door. And even if patients were coming in for a flu, they got screened for depression. So it wasn't that, oh, like you're coming in and I think you have depression and that's when you get screened. So what what was really impressive was that less than 10% people, about 6% people actually declined the screening. Everyone was, like when offered the PHQ-2 as a screener, this was done electronically, everyone accepted it. For more, about, we saw that about 17% people screened positive. What we also saw that not everyone underwent a diagnostic assessment by their clinician on the same day. It could be related to patient didn't have the time, they were addressing something. But what we found was that about half of those who screened positive for depression were actually diagnosed with depression by their primary care provider. So uh, about... uh, uh, to, to about 2,200 patients, we had data for 18 weeks, which is bro- approximately four months. So we wanted to see what were the outcomes. What was really impressive was that in these clinics, fewer than 7% people were actually sent out for management somewhere else. Two-thirds were started on treatment by the primary care provider themselves on a medication management. And what we then found was that about half the patients never came back. So in those four-month period, we didn't have like about half the patients ever coming back for a follow-up visit. But amongst those who came back, if they came back just four times in four months, their remission rate was over 40%, which to me was amazing. Like Because with Stardy, we thought that only a third get better. And that was every two to three weeks, very intensive treatment. Everyone was getting clinical feedback. This is real-world like real high-volume clinics, and even there we are seeing these high rates of remission. What that tells me is that the screening approach, we are maybe getting to patients before they have been ill for very long periods of time where the functioning is poor, they have run out of resources, they may have lost their jobs because of absenteeism and presenteeism. So that, that it really emphasizes the need for screening in primary care clinics. But we also briefly touched on that earlier in the talk about how PHQ-9 or depression symptom severity is not the end all of it. We know and we have published on these things such as work productivity. We have shown that even presenteeism improves very early by two weeks of treatment. Some patients will notice marked improvement in presenteeism. And when they notice that improvement in presenteeism, if they're, even if their depression didn't get better, they are more likely to be better four months onward. So we, we need to be measuring multiple things, which leads to challenges of its own. So, like, what are the different things we should be measuring? So I'm going to highlight a few treatment emergence symptoms. So uh, over here, we just looked at some of them, anxiety, irritability, panic, insomnia. And here we were looking at our patients experiencing worsening of these symptoms. So they had to have significant increase in these symptoms. Thankfully, 
most patients don't experience worsening. We saw about 2 to 5% patients were experiencing worsening in these symptoms. What was impressive to us was that if you had any worsening of irritability, and then it went back to normal, if you had even one worsening of irritability, you were less likely to be doing better three months out of the so that, that, again, tells us that measuring these additional symptoms may be beneficial in addition to measuring depression severity. So, but it then leads to more challenges. Like, I'm, I'm, you are a busy primary care provider. You finally bought into our theory that measuring depression is good. Let's start measuring depression. Then I come around and I tell you that you got to measure quality of life also. Now you have to measure irritability also, maybe measure anxiety also. What all are you going to keep track of? And with depression, at least I'm giving you guidelines that getting a PHQ-9 to a 4 is remission. That's the goal. With irritability, we don't even have any guidelines of what to do. So we decided to address this uh, very simply with a very basic model. So we, we created a model which was predicting remission or no meaningful benefit. So either you're going to be doing really well or the medication is not working, let's make a change. And we looked at just two time points, baseline and week four. Why week four? Because our experience was that most patients they do not have the primary care providers, don't have the appointments available to bring them in a week or two weeks. So four weeks seems to be decent enough period of time. And if you measure just two things, depression and irritability, you can predict outcomes at week eight pretty reliably. And we developed this model in one sample, and we used that sample's estimate to predict it in another. And what we found, as you can see in the bottom figure, the two lines are almost overlapping. So our validity of our findings were pretty considered pretty strong. And then we took an additional step. What we did was develop a calculator. So this is an online calculator. And really what we are hoping is that one day this would be in EHR so that you just put in the scores for those four visits. And then if you can't see probably the, at the bottom, you are getting an individualized probability is that what is the likelihood, what is the percentage chance that they would attain remission versus they would have no meaningful benefit so that then you can in, in use this information in what I'll talk later is shared decision making. Then you can make the decisions with your patients about should I make any changes to the treatment? Should I stay on the same treatment? And if you have any questions, we'll be happy to answer those. I'm going through a lot of material. Then uh, turning uh, focus a little bit again, uh, talking about the different treatments for depression. Again, this is a very short list, a lot of material. What I also wanted to point out was that medications used for treatment of depression are not just effective antidepressants. They're also FDA approved for a lot of other conditions. So you may end up using these medications for a lot of different behavioral health conditions and not just for depression. So for example, for anxiety, you may use some of the same medications. So uh, we, and when you start using these medications, we have to be careful about the side effects that can happen with these treatments. So certain side effects happen early on, like with SSRIs, gastrointestinal symptoms will happen early on. A lot of patients, if they kind of like bear through it, they would resolve. But other symptoms may come on later on. They may emerge once they have attained remission, they are doing really well, now they are experiencing these side effects, and that may lead to another discussion about treatment change. So one of those side effects with continued treatment is weight gain. 
Uh, we, we really talk a lot about that in the context of second-generation antipsychotic medications, medications like olanzapine, quetiapine, that lead to a lot of weight gain. But even some antidepressant medications are associated with uh, higher incidences of weight gain. For example, medications like mirtazapine uh, are associated with higher rates of weight gain as compared to bupropion has pretty much no weight gain. So having that conversation with the patients, and I have, there is a very cool uh, publicly available tool on the internet, and I have a link to it where this information is available, and you can have, use that in conversation with your patients. Another side effect that we know uh, can be pretty debilitating and may affect uh, whether a person decides to continue with their treatment is uh, sexual dysfunction. Uh, the key thing to remember here is that it often is a symptom of depression. So if you are measuring it after two months of treatment, sometimes it's difficult to ascertain whether it was already there existing and is still there unchanged, or is this worsening? And that's why what I recommend is that to measure sexual function when starting the treatment so that you have established a baseline. There are multiple scales available, and... Uh, uh, they are listed over here. Uh, you can try implementing them in your clinical practice, especially if it's something that's important for the patient. Uh, there are, again, certain medication considerations. Sexual dysfunction are reported more commonly with SSRIs and SNRIs. Among all antidepressants, these are least common with bupropion. Uh, then uh, some of the newer medications like vilazodone or levomilnasopran, they have lower rates of sexual dysfunction as compared to SSRIs and SNRIs. Another thing, if you have been reading New York Times and like other public press over the past couple of years has, that has gained a lot of discussion is this idea of antidepressant withdrawal. So antidepressant medications are addictive. What it really is talking about something that has been known for a very long time, that if patients suddenly discontinue their medications, or if they skipped several doses with medications like paroxetine, they would experience discontinuation symptoms. There is a cool mnemonic called FINISH, which is listed over here that around 2006 someone came up with it and that could be help you guide so anytime you're discontinuing medicaid antidepressant medications ssris snris it would be worthwhile to inform the patients that they may have experienced discontinuation symptoms. Now, the different medications have different rates. So, for example, paroxetine is uh, notoriously bad for high rates of discontinuation symptoms. Venlafaxine, desvenlafaxine also have higher rates of discontinuation symptoms. Amongst SSRIs, fluoxetine has pretty much minimal discontinuation symptoms. So it can often be a strategy that if someone is experiencing, you can go to fluoxetine as sort of a bridge to discontinue antidepressant medications. But what uh, this also, uh, what, what this uh, leads to is that how are we going to be making decisions with patients about their depression treatment? So I tend to think of this in terms of these very simple clinical questions that can arise. And here, we as clinicians should be giving information to the patients, and patients are conveying their what's important to them, what they have heard, what uh, their experiences may have been, and then using that together to make a shared decision. Why is this important? Because often managing depression, there is not a clear-cut right answer. There is no one medication that is clearly superior to every other medication. There is not going to be a case that 
you can say with 100% certainty that this treatment will work for you. So because of that ambiguity, it's important to engage patients in that shared decision-making process. So even things such as is medication indicated? For mild to moderate depression, it has been shown that psychotherapy, even things such as behavioral activation, which are not very intensive from provider's perspective, are as effective as pharmacotherapy. Exercise has been shown to be a good antidepressant treatment if patients can engage in it. So just saying that exercise may not work, but giving them the tools and then following up on it to make sure that they're compliant with it may help. So medication may not be the answer to everything. But once we have selected that we are going to use medication, which is appropriate, how long should you continue? These are conversations to have before sometimes the medication has started. And then uh, whether someone needs to discontinue their treatment. So someone who has had, uh, I often see patients who have like clear history of what we call recurrent depression. They get depressed, they get started on it, they are feeling better. After a few years, they discontinue, they have a relapse, then they get started again. So in such cases, maybe they may, depression is a chronic illness like diabetes or hypertension where they may need to be on some treatment indefinitely. Again, there is not a lot of data to back this approach. More research is needed, but that's, again, some conversation to be had. So this is the decision aid tool I referred to you about. There is a link there that will take you to a website. There is a reference to the paper that used it. And this was developed by at Mayo Clinic, but it really talks about, it gives patients information, and website is pretty interactive, where patients can like look at the different treatment options, what are the side effect profile, and as you can see that some of, they also have information about discontinuation. So if you stop, how likely are you going to experience symptoms? And this can be used on an individual patient basis to see what is important to them. Do they care really about how bad discontinuation is going to be uh, versus do they care more about cost? So some of those things uh, have to be factored. And so when the decision is finally made, patient feels comfortable with it. So that, that's the importance. Now in this study, they found that decision aids improved the decisional comfort. When patients were using the decision aid, they felt more comfortable. Unfortunately, use of decision aid wasn't associated with higher improvement rates. So Again, uh, part of that is that often when you get to these studies, the providers and the patients, they're already bought into the idea that we need to be, uh, I, I think the next study should be decision aid after screening. So that, that would then let us know, like it's kind of like hypertension screening in mall. Like you're grabbing people, seeing what their blood pressure is. A lot of them don't want to get started on a treatment. So that's, again, a perspective that we need to keep in mind when thinking about depression treatment. Now, uh, I'm a researcher, so it's really important for me to plug in some research implications. And this is uh, an FDA uh, draft guidance that is available online right now. And as you can see, circled, these are the only criteria that FDA currently considers when saying whether an antidepressant medication is effective or not. And these scales are Hamilton, which was developed in 1960s, Madras, and CGI. So there is like no conversation about quality of life, work productivity, things that we know have the highest burden, but they, they are not considered when we are thinking about whether a medication is effective or not. And that's why FDA is soliciting information to maybe update their guidance, to maybe see if there are additional outcomes that could be considered. 
And uh, one outcome, for example, is cognitive function. And you may, we briefly uh, went through these scales, and there is the aspect of subjective cognitive function, which is through this scale called CPFQ, developed by Maurizio Fawa here in Boston. And then there are objective measures such as DSST. What uh, the, the paper referenced here, uh, Dr. Fava and colleagues, they found that there is not a whole lot of overlap between patients who feel they are subjectively cognitively impaired versus when you do an objective cognitive test. They, they don't often overlap. Again, this is not surprising because we see that in dementia literature, that with mild cognitive impairment, sometimes patients may not perceive that they have cognitive impairment. You do a test and you see it. And so, again, something to keep in mind that things are not very simple when we are ma- dealing with uh, patients. But it's important when you use different outcome measures, you may see differences for drugs. So, for example, in this case here, uh, this is a meta-analysis of all the different studies that have used this particular measure of cognitive function, an objective test, and then see whether the medication is superior to placebo or not. So, as you can see, uh, only vortioxetine is consistently better uh, the effect sizes always favor the drug versus placebo. Only for vortioxetine is it consistently better as compared to other, so for example, duloxetine, it's not uh, there, and for other medications also, it's not there. Now this test, the DSST, is a really sensitive tool for looking at impairment. So if you give healthy adults some alcohol, their performance on DSST gets impaired. So it's a sensitive tool, and what we are seeing is that with certain medications, there may be a better advantage. Should we then implement this in clinical practice and use somehow for better improvement? We don't know that, but we probably are not going to see that much unless FDA is driving some of these decisions, like what drug companies are studying. And that's, again, something, a conversation happening in the clinical trial realm, something to keep in mind. So just to summarize, uh, I can't emphasize enough that screening, universal screening of depression should be happening in all medical health settings, but especially in primary care. And then uh, once, uh, if, if you are co- comfortable using med- treatments, if there is support available, then using measurement-based care approach to start and manage antidepressant medications may get as good or even better outcomes as compared to referring them to see a psychiatrist, where my boss, Trivedi, used to say that if you refer 10 people to a psychiatrist, 11 of them will not show up. So, uh, so uh, and then uh, utilizing shared decision-making because we don't have very clear-cut answers. So, again, keeping that in mind. So I'll stop over there and over to you for the next part. Thank you. So what if depression isn't the only aspect that your patient is dealing with? So many times there are multiple domains of a patient's struggles. This person, for example, is someone who's depressed, they're overweight, they're coping with diabetes, they're drinking too much, have multiple symptoms without findings. They keep bringing more symptoms to their doctor, which frustrates the doctor because she doesn't want to be spend the whole 15 minutes ruling out new issues. She wants to talk about the depression or adherence to medication or uh, weight gain or something. Um, 
And so where do you start with this? It's pretty clear that if you start on all fronts, as I have watched many residents do in my career of training residents, it tends not to work. Going through saying you need to lose some weight, by the way, and would you take your meds, by the way, and that, that kind of take it all in so that you feel you've covered what they need doesn't lead to change. What you look for is where is the patient willing to start? And an example for this person is if she would be beginning to start an exercise program, she would be doing evidence-based intervention for depression and evidence-based intervention for overweight. She would be helping her diabetes. Where she, it is not, we do not have to have a treatment plan for everything with people with these complex presentations. We need to engage them and get started. These are, these are hard patients for everybody. They come with a lot of names. There's a literature that calls them complex patients. Um, they have multiple chronic illnesses, often with behavioral health and substance abuse diagnoses. They come back over and over again. There's a literature for high utilizers. Um, the, um, one of my colleagues calls them the overserviced and underserved. Um, some doctors have called them heart sink patients. You look on your schedule, you see that name and your heart sinks. Um, you know how it's going to be that day. They are underprivileged patients. The literatures for these different names of the patients tend not to overlap. They are siloed, and they don't refer to each other. I call them multiply disadvantaged patients. And to help these folks, it helps to reach back to the original ideas of patient-centered care. You know, um, the uh, IOM, when they came out with the uh, Quality Chasm Report, there were 10 rules for the change of health care for the 21st century. About five of them were, most, were about how we deliver, how we do our practice, the processes of our practice. And about five of them were about relationships between the health providers and patients. And, the, and it recommended that the patient be the source of control in planning their care, that the patient have unfettered access to their own medical information. They called for a partnership between physicians and patients. And as this was um, implemented, as the patient, patient-centered medical home was implemented in broad uh, numbers, an evaluation a few years later, published in 2010, said that we're doing pretty well on the, how we're changing the practice. It starts out rough. Um, provider satisfaction tends to go down. Patient satisfaction tends to go down at the first few um, measurements. But after two to four years, we tend to settle down and we've got it right and we think we know what we're doing. The change of the relationship between the physician and the patient or the health professional and the patient didn't show much change at all. The, the National Demonstration Project evaluators recommended, he said, physicians need new mental models of care. Wow, that's a big call for there. Um, so if you're going to do... Uh, or in for these multi 
disadvantaged patients, it turns out that this kind of patient-centered care that was originally recommended is effective. The evidence says that's how you reach people. And the best description of that in practice that I know of is for is from the folks who looked at these folks through the lens of their trauma histories, because a very large number of them have trauma histories. And so those folks say, if we're going to engage and treat these folks, we have to have treatment that the patient experiences as safe. We, and we have to know that they experience it as safe. We have to have transparency and trustworthiness, meaning the patient has to have access to all the information about their care. The patient needs meaningful choice in the goals of their care. And collaboration and mutuality with their caregivers, shared decision-making in pursuing those goals, and empowerment. And this isn't about power. For empowerment in this world, it's about interactions focusing on patient strengths and successes as much as possible. So if you're going to ask physicians or health providers to do this, it needs to be in the context of a team. Um, It's too much to say, now I want you to change how you relate to all your patients. Doctors get that all the time. The team needs to make it possible to do this. And to do that, um, doctors need to have more expertise sets on that team and more types of service, behavioral health expertise, care management or care coordination that's dealing with the social determinants of health for these folks. Um, They need folks who can help them with the kinds of things that they don't need to do, like scribing the the visit. No, doctors shouldn't be typing and looking at their computers. It's a nightmare for them, and it's a nightmare for their patients, and people have solved that. Um, Protocol-based treatments. The person comes in with a, a sore throat. Someone does the rapid strep test. When the doctor arrives in the room, the results of the rapid strep test are already there. Um, And they need a broader set of expertise when they're thinking about what's going on with with particular patients where we just can't figure out. What we usually do isn't working, and we can't seem to solve how to connect with this person. So there are certainly some areas in which there are um, approaches for folks to use that are um, now being taught things like motivational interviewing, shared decision-making, minimally disruptive medicine, where the, the burden of having a complex or a chronic illness is part of the category or the, the thinking in designing what a patient can actually take on, how much treatment is possible to I- impose on the patient. Relationship-centered care, um, addressing health literacy, coaching patients to assertively relate to their physicians, to be willing to ask questions, to be sure they understand. Those kinds of um, methodologies are helping move practices toward partnership. What about the future? Well, um, in the future, it seems that these treatments for... um, for 
our complex patients, for how do we engage them, how do we keep them involved, how do we try and um, address their needs and make them partners when they don't necessarily want to be partners. When these are the folks, if, if you ask who are the groups that most believe that the physician should be in the lead on a treatment plan, it is physicians and the lowest activated patients. Those are the ones I think the doctors should be doing it all. Why are they asking me to do stuff here? So the helping these folks grow into being partners in their own care is a challenge. And um, some things that are out there now, open notes, transparency. 41 million people in this country now get their care in health systems that has open notes, which means that they can read everything that is written about them by their doctors. And And the group to whom it makes the most difference is complex patients, multiply disadvantaged patients, because they are the ones who feel the most put upon by the medical system, who feel the most vulnerable in uh, an interaction with, with their physician. Patient-centered care plans. These are care plans in which the physicians and the patients and other folks on the team come up with a plan that is then the plan for the patient wherever they go in the health system. And it says who can, it ha- who the, can know about the patient's information, what to do if the patient is having a terrible time or is overreacting. Those kinds of things get discussed in advance, and people end up feeling much better able to connect with those folks because they have some information about how to do it. Um, the elements of trauma-informed care, strength-based interviewing, I think of this as, in fact, you're looking for care that is um, transparent, it's empowering, it's activating, and it's mutual. And that happens to be the letters of T-E-A-M. I call it the team way. And, in fact, um, I uh, published a book about it a month ago, and uh, I'm also an exhibitor, exhibitor, and so if you want to come down to the exhibit room later, I'm in 414 booth, and I'd love to chat with you more about this. Uh, you, you actually have the opportunity to see patients on uh, a different way, different type of patients than the ones that we see in the primary care. And we do our best to evaluate those patients. Uh, we evaluate the comorbidities. Uh, you know, we get the vitamin B12s, and we get the thyroid function and, and all of that. Uh, at the time when we, when we uh, referred the patients to the psychiatrist is when we found no way further. So those patients probably have been with us for, for a while. So the patients that you're seeing are uh, either difficult, complicated patients, for patients that we have found no other ways to manage in the primary care setting. I, I don't know. Okay, it's working now. So a very valid point. So this idea of like when do we see patients and at what setting, and that's the model like the Vital Science 6, what we call like primary care first approach is that precisely thing. The initial treatment can start in primary care, and you refer them when it's not 
feasible to manage them in primary care. So you would do that for diabetes, right? Like start them on metformin, maybe a few other medications. If all they need is like management of their insulin, you're going to at some point refer them to an endocrinologist. So that's the same principle that we would like to see so that there is a funnel of care and not that the patient in my office, heart sink patient, let me send them to a psychiatrist, be done with on my uh, uh, get them off my list. So that that's the uh, model at least that we think of. And uh, where that comes is, and that's the data I was referring to from Stardy, that about a third of patients with depression have what we call treatment-resistant depression, that yet another trial of medication is going, not going to result in improvement. The likelihood of improvement drops down to less than like 15%. And there, we may need more treatment-resistant depression-specific treatments, things such as electroconvulsive therapy, interventional treatments like FDA recently approved intranasal esketamine, and we don't expect primary care to manage that. That's where maybe it'll be earn our salary as psychiatrists. So I hope I addressed In you. some places where the um, primary care behavioral health model is used, part of that team that is introduced is psychiatric support. So um, the, uh, in, in fully integrated clinics, the, the behavioral health clinician who's likely to be a social worker or a psychologist that's on the floor with the primary care doctors is helping a great deal, but there needs to be access to psychiatric consultation around prescriptive uh, kinds of issues and other issues, and um, that becomes a part of the whole behavioral health program. It's not a referral in, the, in those places, it's a piece of what's um, of the, the program. So uh, like what we did for our primary care uh, provider first approach was, uh, I was the psychiatrist on so-called call. So uh, to get the buy-in from primary care providers, I gave them my cell phone number. It wasn't that I would get like 30 calls a day. Once in a while, they would have a challenging case, someone that they can ask or just like bounce of ideas, like a curbside opinion. And uh, I wouldn't get too many calls, but having just that access to that resource was really valuable. I left uh, Southwestern in Dallas a, te- a year ago now. I still get text messages from some of them. <laughs> I still answer those questions because uh, they, they may not have realized that I have moved on, but if they have a... Uh, so I'm building those partnerships, and then if I had a patient who needed primary care... I would refer those patients to them. So it's a bi-directional, even at a provider level, establishing those collaborations is really important, and that's what uh, the uh, behavioral health model also emphasizes. So. I, I spoke to the chief psychiatrist at uh, uh, Cherokee Health Systems, which is a big health system in Tennessee, and he said that uh, he can support a practice of five five PCPs, full-time PCPs, on two hours a week. Um, That's two hours for him of face-to-face telepsychiatry reaching out to these clinics around in the hills. But the thing that makes it work is that they have his cell phone number. And so that means they'll refer someone. He'll see this person one to four times, and he'll return them, in most cases, 
to the PCP with a cocktail of medic recommended medications, and the doctors will be prescribing things that they never in their life thought that they would be prescribing. But they do that knowing that if this doesn't work, my colleague is available to me. And if when that extra access to the psychiatrist wasn't there, those providers weren't going near those specialty um, regimes of psychiatric meds. Yes, sir. I don't mean to derail the conversation, but I think it's related. Uh, I was just wondering what you guys' opinion was in terms of PCMH providers providing substance use treatment on an outpatient basis, particularly for opiate use or alcohol. Thank you. Sure. Um, well, one of the things that I have been involved with is training psychologists to work in primary care, and we're now in our program training them to be the behavioral health piece of medicated-assisted treatment for opioid uh, use disorder, which is a crisis. That's not news to anybody. Um, the, and so the behavioral health person, I think, has to be trained and competent in substance abuse. And that is sometimes a problem because you can come out of some mental health graduate schools and not know anything about substance abuse and think that that's somebody else's job. And on the other hand, if you have someone who's depressed and they're drinking and they are need to lose weight and they're not taking their meds, and I, like I said, you start where the patient wants to start, as you get going and as you get engaged, what you're working on can move. And so as someone starts to get a little bit more of their, for instance, their exercise program and they begin to feel a little bit better, it's then reasonable to say, you know, how do you think that your drinking is affecting? You're, when you try to go get your exercise, you feel that that's getting in the way? Because it sounds like to me you're looking like someone who wants to get healthy. You want to work on that together? So you've got to have somebody who's ready to go in whatever direction there, and that's part of the training that I think is basic for behavioral health clinicians. I agree with that, and also I wanted to point out that in our program, after they have screened for depression, positive for depression, they would also be screened for drug and alcohol use disorder, mm -hmm. which was a little bit counterintuitive. They could have started with that screening, but uh, again, this part of the silo, like we lived in the depression world, so we thought we were stepping out of it by doing this additional screen, but again, uh, I mean, I completely agree that uh, the substance use treatment has to be integrated with behavioral health treatment. They can't exist as silos. So. All right, y'all. We're done. Y'all go home. <laughs> <laughs>